Well, I think we ought to start, ladies and gentlemen. Um, this is a, a rather unusual occasion. Um, we're very pleased indeed to uh, welcome Lord Owen to this uh, meeting to talk about a subject which uh, is relevant to us and certainly highly relevant to me because uh, I have a great interest in personality disorder. Um, many people have somehow said that people with psychiatric disorders get very interested in the subject, must have it themselves, but I, I have to leave that for you to decide. Uh, and, uh, but that is a separate matter for discussion. What we're talking about now is a, um, a very interesting um, suggestion made by David uh, in a book called The Hubris Syndrome, which uh, he will be signing copies of down at the Wise Press stall afterwards. Uh, he would also be able to answer questions following this little discussion at that time, but because this is a plenary session, uh, we don't have questions during the course of this uh, uh, discussion. But uh, David, although he is uh, much better known uh, as a politician, uh, as a, one of our ministers of health, um, very early on, in, uh, where he, he taught me something which uh, I've remembered ever since, he said, um, you must never have more than six people in a room if you're going to make decisions properly. If it's get more than six, uh, it gets difficult. I wasn't quite sure whether that was, was because he had Barbara Castle there or whether it was other reasons, but certainly no more than six, it makes a tremendous difference when you're making decisions. Um, and uh, he trained at St. Thomas's Hospital where I trained, and in fact, he taught me when I was a, a medical student. And we also worked together for um, the same consultant, Dr. William Sargent, who has, attracts a rather bad press nowadays, but was a very uh, unusual and charismatic figure who I think has been under-recognized in British psychiatry. Um, although David subsequently left his post as neurology and uh, psychiatry lecturer and went into politics, um, he um, has never lost his interest in the subject. and. Uh, that reminded me of, uh, of when I first qualified and got very excited on my first day. The first person I met was a South African registrar who, who uh, observed my excitement at having my, my qualification and doing my first job. And he turned to me and said, Peter, you may think you have achieved a qualification, but you have in fact contracted a disease. <laughs> and unfortunately, if in fact you go into medicine you can never leave it, in my view, and David is actually demonstrating this now because now that um, the, um, the comings and goings of active politics are becoming less important, he's going back to his old roots and the, the hubris syndrome is actually developed from another important book which is called In Sickness and, and in Power, which is, I would also recommend you read, which is a discussion about how many of our leaders have in fact various forms of um, illness which could affect their judgments greatly and really should arouse concern. But this is one of the subjects that we're uh, talking about today, this, the hubris syndrome. And um, uh, David has, has um, been uh, taken over to some extent by um, this incredibly uh, infectious disorder called DSM-itis. Uh, he's got a series of operational criteria for the hubris syndrome, which I think I ought to read out. Um, you must realise, of course, DSM stands for 
I do apologise, David. Diagnosis for simple minds. If you can't think for yourself, you have to have a set of criteria which tell you all the things. You tick them off, and when you've got them all right, you've got the diagnosis. But uh, um, this is the um, list that, um, which I think is uh, probably an accurate one, which uh, David has presented. It's a narcissistic propensity to see the world primarily as an arena in which they can exercise, they, as this obviously person suffering from it, can exercise power and seek glory rather than as a place with problems that need approaching in a pragmatic and non-self-referential manner. Two, a predisposition to take actions which seem likely to cast them in a good light, in order to, i.e. in order to enhance their image. And of course, that's very true of many politicians nowadays. Three, a disproportionate concern with image and presentation. Four, a messianic manner of talking about what they're doing and a tendency to exaltation. An identification of themselves with the state to the extent they regard the outlook and the interests of the two as identical. A tendency to talk of themselves in the third person or using the royal we. I think Mrs. Thatcher may have been in mind when he uh, developed that criterion. Excessive confidence in their own judgment and contempt for the advice and criticism of others. Exaggerated self-belief, bordering on a sense of omnipotence. A belief that being accountable to the mundane court of colleagues or public opinion, the real court to which they answer is much greater, history or God. An unshakable belief that in that court they will be vindicated. Restlessness, recklessness and impulsiveness, which of course are very matters of great concern in world leaders. Loss of contact with reality, often associated with progressive isolation. And a, te a tendency to allow their broad vision especially their conviction about the moral rectitude of a proposed cause to obviate the need to consider other aspects of it, and a consequent type of incompetence in carrying out a policy which we could call hubristic incompetence. And uh, one of the reasons why it may be relevant to us, uh, not just as citizens, but also as psychiatrists, is that um, David is introducing this as a, a syndrome of personality. And... Uh, He's not suggesting that this is a condition which is formally should be included in any personality disorder classification, but it's a, a, an acquired syndrome that is seen as a personality problem, but some, some, something which is only manifest when leaders in power. In other words, it's in the environment of the powerhouse that they develop this particular syndrome. Um, now... I've introduced this, and uh, perhaps uh, this book is very symbolic, you know, very sort of, uh, the cover of it shows that very famous uh, still from that very famous sequence where Bush, George Bush Jr. and Tony Blair were walking together at the White House after, um, this was about um, five years ago, about, when, um, shortly after the Iraq war. And um, the... Um, uh, the interesting corollary, the interest of, of this, it, it, I think the interest of personality disorder among the average public is somehow incredibly related to politicians. I think it was Winston Churchill who said that the House of Commons was the best asylum in the world. Uh, and I think, you know, in an amazing way he had a playing with words, but it's curious how people are always ask questions about the personalities and the psychiatric status of politicians. And, of course, um, for years they've been regarded as all psychopaths. And, of course, nowadays, particularly in the House of Commons, you could say that some of the um, 
features that we have been reading about rather tediously, I have to say, in the last few days, about politicians are, are <coughs> perhaps um, uh, rather uh, confirming of the view that all politicians are psychopaths. I think this is nonsense, and I hope we aren't going to be talking like that in the, uh, in the next uh, uh, half hour or so. But I, I've talked for too much, and I'm going to, hand, I, I'm going to uh, perhaps ask uh, David to explain in a bit more detail why he feels this syndrome is important and what relationship it has to personality. Well, I think that uh, I have to somehow explain my own reasoning, but uh, let me first of all some caveats. I'm not a psychiatrist. I was brainwashed by uh, William Sargent, but I was predominantly a neurologist in those days. And I feel a bit like Lloyd George, who before he went to a BMA meeting when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, said that he felt like he was going in to the lion's den like Daniel, only this time they knew their anatomy. Well, I think you know your psychiatry, so I'm, I'm hesitant in this area. But I've written it, and I wish to be judged by it, because I want you as a profession to engage on it. And I've written with uh, an American professor of psychiatry at Duke's, now an emeritus professor, Jonathan Davidson, an article in uh, Brain, which is, I think, the May edition, and it's called Hubris Syndrome, an Acquired Personality Disorder, question mark, a study of US presidents and UK prime ministers over the last 100 years. And I want to be clear, I have tried to define hubris syndrome very narrowly because I am interested in a particular issue, which is people who are broadly what the general public would call sane, and I think the general public are ahead of us as a profession on this whole issue of hubris, who in office lose it. That would be a public expression. They're crazy. They've got above themselves. Or lots of phrases like that. Now, these are people who have won elections, sometimes two elections, sometimes three elections. And yet, as they continue in office, so they develop this. Now, one of the things that I felt strongly about is that we would be wiser to exclude people who have any history of depression. Because we all know, you know better than I, how difficult it is sometimes to separate out uh, as just a depression from bipolar disorder. And anyhow, there is, uh, like so much of the, the spread of illnesses, and particularly the spread of mental illnesses, uh, certainly in my view, a diathesis on the whole of the bipolar disorder. We all know people who are uh, what we would call manic or uh, somewhat pompous. We all know people who are supremely arrogant. The problem is that many of these qualities, um, confidence, able to inspire, um, work very long hours, are actually qualities which people often admire and want in leaders. It's when it becomes exaggerated, when it goes over, that we have to watch our step. Because the evidence is these leaders start making mistakes. So I decided to use the word hubris. Um, I mean, it is interesting that uh, Ian Kershaw, in that really wonderful two-volume history of uh, uh, Hitler, has the first 
volume up to 1936 called Just Hubris, and from 36 on to his death, uh, Nemesis. And I wanted a term which people would be able to relate to. To be frank about it, if you start trying to sell to politicians or businessmen, and incidentally, I think this is a, a disease of power, and if you were, it doesn't matter where you're exercising considerable power, you're reliable to be affected. It may not even be a disease. I've stuck to calling it a syndrome. I've not used the word disorder. That must be for others to describe. But if we think of a syndrome as being a collection of signs and symptoms that are more likely to be found together than apart, then I think there is a case for trying to narrow this section down now, uh, as I say, the advantage of looking at politicians is that there's a very extensive source material. They speak a lot. They write quite a bit. People write about them even more. There's a whole journalistic output analyzing them. So it's very rich and fertile in terms to analyze, particularly when you're analyzing people that may have uh, lived before you were born. And so... Now, I, I came to the conclusion, in a way rather painfully, because Lloyd George happens to be my hero. I think he's a great, the greatest politician uh, in, in many respects. Not as great as Franklin Roosevelt, but, but in that class. And I've always been amazed why he was such an extraordinarily successful wartime leader from 16, 1916 to 1918. And it started to go wrong in 1919, and eventually he was kicked out. And by the end, he, the very people who had praised him to the hilt, the man who won the war, were, wanted him out and were saying that he had gone to his head. Winston Churchill once said by 1921 he was foreign secretary as well as prime minister. You may notice that there is, I'll come to those people later. And I think there is very clear evidence that he changed in office. And that's what I'm trying to look at. I think there is pretty good evidence on Chamberlain. He began to be obsessed by the fact that he, and only he, could uh, confront Hitler and deal with Hitler. And he narrowed his cabinet uh, colleagues involved in the uh, Munich diplomacy down to only those who supported him. And he took advice from a smaller and smaller group of people. And then you come to Margaret Thatcher. I, and I analyze this in quite a lot of detail. That I, I'm not an instant critic of Margaret Thatcher. And I watched her very carefully. I was an opposition leader marking her, so to speak. I saw her at the time of the Falklands War. I saw her during the miners' strike. I did not detect hubris. In fact, I detected anxiety in the Falklands War. And caution, not words you would normally describe, uh, come to mind about Thatcher. Over the miners' strike, we need to remember that she paid up and bought off Joe Gormley, a sensible leader of the miners, in 1981, and prepared for what she saw as an inevitable clash with Arthur Scargill. And she seemed to change after the third election, well into her prime ministership in 87, and she was effectively kicked out by her colleagues. And I began to then analyze very carefully, after I am afraid, 
the Iraq war had started. Tony Blair's position. I was in a rather privileged position in that I'd seen Tony Blair in almost identical circumstances, informally over dinner, just wives and he and I, uh, in the end of 1998, when we discussed Iraq, and in the middle of summer of 2002. And there was no doubt that they were, the nature of the discussion, the quality of the discussion, the atmosphere around the discussion was completely different. And I missed it, but going back in the car, my wife said to me, he's messianic. And now that's a word that's frequently used about. But in 2002, it was not so commonly used about uh, Tony Blair. And then I watched as somebody who was, who was wanted to topple Saddam Hussein and was ready to support and trust uh, the government on this issue, the sheer incompetence of the handling of the aftermath of the war. And I began to come to the feeling that there was this separate category of incompetence, hubristic incompetence, where it was not the normal mistakes which each and every one of us do, but it was mistakes that stemmed from not wanting to have conflicting advice, not wanting to consult other people, not needing to consult other people, narrowing the circle of contacts. And the more one analyzed the uh, Blair prime ministership, the more one realized it was a presidential system, actually a dual presidential system, with Gordon Brown, the president uh, for the economy, and Blair, the president for international affairs. And it began to become clear that we actually had not had a government like this. The more you saw, and it became more apparent, it, it sort of eked out. The cabinet used to meet, but the cabinet didn't meet like a normal cabinet. It was not a cabinet, it was a sort of sounding board. It was not a constant, it wasn't even consultation, and it certainly wasn't a decision-making body. And, Around that, you began to think that this man has changed in office, and he has come to take decisions in a much narrower framework and in a different way. Now, I believe you can analyze that exactly the same if you look at the scandal of Enron in business in the United States, the collapse of that major company. I believe that as we look now at the present financial crisis, you will see evidence of key people in important decision-making in banks, the Royal Bank of Scotland, the chief executive, in uh, AIG, in uh, HBOS. You can find people who were given and took a power decision-making process where they were able to shed whatever checks there were around them and whatever balances there were around them and bring and suck in more and more decisions into them. And then I think you have to look at the atmosphere in which power is exercised. It, it is a, of itself, a hierarchical structure. It's extraordinarily easy. You're surrounded by civil servants or by business appointees, many of whom you have brought into this association with yourself. And they, there is a fawning relationship, which you've seen, of course, guide in Yes Minister. And now there's another factor in politicians, the heads of government, the security situation, the real risk that they could be shot, has led to a great many changes. You know, when I was first an MP, I walked in through Downing Street. There was no gates. 
no policeman. You knocked on the door. Inside, you explained who you were. You, you certainly didn't produce passports. Now, to watch a United States president arrive at Downing Street is to watch a military operation. Now, it's not their fault, but it's a very different atmosphere. It tends to feed this feeling that they're not as other men or women, that they are uh, living a very artificial life. It's not possible any longer to go to a public meeting in British politics and be heckled in the old days. The last person to sort of... Uh, have sort of dialogue with electorate on a soapbox was John Major. They're ticket-only meetings, to some extent, genuinely, for security reasons. They talk to the party faithful. They are surrounded by people who want to give them the impression that they are totally supportive of all their decisions. And around these political leaders have grown people who are ready not to feel that they're part of a collective decision-making. I mean, a, a Wilson Callahan cabinet was, had big people who were cussed and difficult and didn't come to a cabinet mini, me, meeting to underwrite what was being done. They came to a cabinet meeting perfectly ready to challenge people in different departments. Now, that's the climate and that was the atmosphere in which I have tried to approach this. And then I have tried, not terribly successfully, I'm sure, to do so with some uh, scientific rigor and certainly in the Brain article, I've been greatly helped by working closely with Jonathan Davidson, who himself was the lead author for a paper which analyzed all uh, the mental Ill health of all US presidents. And uh, so he has already tried to use this autobiographical, biographical, and historic analysis. And he, he's just dealing with uh, mental illness. And then you come to this question, and I don't want to go on, and let's perhaps leave it more to dialogue. A lot of these leaders we could have put in the category of hubris syndrome, but we didn't for other reasons. Woodrow Wilson, for example, has got so much other psychopathology. You know, he had anxiety and depression when he was quite young. He had repeated uh, vascular episodes in the brain. By the time he arrived at the peace, having been a rather successful president in his first term, having the time he arrived at the uh, peace conference in uh, Paris, he, many people thought, was dementing. And he certainly was a very different personality from the one who had been elected president in the first place. And then, of course, you know he had his stroke and other things. Uh, LBJ, uh, Lyndon B Baines Johnson, in many ways a very remarkable president if you just looked at his civil rights record, at his uh, domestic circulation, but one who is always going to be judged by what happened in Vietnam, had very severe depression and has been diagnosed as having bipolar and is a diagnosis which actually I personally, for what it's worth, support. So we exclude these people. Nixon, very hubristic as it came obvious to him that he was going to win by a landslide, a second uh, election. And that was when the seeds of Watergate were sown. And that was when he uh, was never completely proved that he'd authorized the burglary, but it, the signs are. But certainly, he organized the cover-up. And this was a, a lawyer, uh, and in some respects, a cautious man. We ruled him out. And again, I think that uh, it's this t wish to try to keep the hubris syndrome narrow. That's my hope. 
Now, you as psychiatrists if, will come to a conclusion, I hope, eventually over this. You may or may not decide to put it within personality disorders. You may or not decide that it's an offshoot of narcissistic personality disorder. You may say it stands sui generis on its own and on its own. By which time, I hope, we'll have much more data on this issue from people who study business people and take that. It's not easy to study these people. You know, they, they're not going to take part in any psychological tests. They think that they're completely normal and they will be completely dismissive. They have usually difficult relationships with their doctors. So getting at this issue and analyzing it will never be easy and the numbers are small. But the consequences of allowing these people to continue in power, unchecked, uncurbed, are pretty serious. And if you want to see, in my view, the effect of hubris syndrome in their different personalities, Bush and Blair, and the concoction which helped to create the, uh, uh, the fiasco, really, of the aftermath of the rather successful invasion in Baghdad and since, then I, I think it's worth looking at it for its uh, very, very deeply damaging consequences. And then if you look at the origins of the current uh, financial and economic crisis that we're in, it's not hard to show rogue decision-making, rogue elements, which overrode the overall structure of banking and regulatory framework. So I think it's important. And I hope, as I say, that you uh, will engage in it. I know there's a reluctance among psychiatrists to become the moral arbiters of individuals, the rather unfortunate uh, analysis that uh, Freud made with Bullitt in that, uh, and Woodrow Wilson, has, I think, made many psychiatrists wary of this. I, I don't, you should be wary of this. But I hope you will engage over it, and you may well put it eventually in the waste paper basket, but. I hope not before giving it serious study. And don't just dismiss it all and say, ah, oh, they're all the same, these politicians. They're all like this. This is just a thing. A lot of them have not been like this. We've had serious political leaders, Truman, to name but one, Eisenhower, Attlee, um, Callahan. These people are not hubristic. They are not crazy. They're not, uh, they're not, they're not being modest, but they are, it is not, a, it not it's not sufficient. It's a cop-out to just dismiss them all, and particularly in the present climate about uh, MPs, to think they're all uh, corrupt, they're all got a hand in the till. Uh, it needs serious study. Um, I, I'm going to ask a question which I think many people in the audience may, may, have, um, may be thinking about, uh, bearing in mind that the environment of power is, um, can be damaging in the way you suggested, bearing in mind that you're talking as a politician and you were the leader of a, an important party, the SDP, do you think you would have been in any danger of getting this if you'd become prime minister? Well, I, I was certainly in danger of it uh, when I was a political leader. So I, this is what I call the Shirley Williams Amendment. Uh, she said to me, David, when you're writing this book, uh, you, must, you must admit that there were times when people thought you were a little megalomaniac. Well, actually, in my autobiography, in my defense, which was published in 91, I actually quote from uh, 
what was a great friend of mine, Peter Jenkins, who used to write in The Guardian, and how in 1987 he dismissed my behavior in rejecting a merger with the liberals as megalomanic. And I write it all about it. And I think it was true. Most criticism in my book have some merits. And if you dismiss the criticism, you miss something. And I, I think that at that particular time, I had resigned as the leader of the SDP, and we were heading uh, for a merger, and I thought disaster. And I didn't have the same constraints on me as I would normally have. But I, I mean, I once said to my wife, when I was reading that remarkable letter by Clementine Churchill to Winston Churchill in end of June 1940. And she says, you know, it's a lovely letter, but it's a tough letter, actually. And it says, you are impossible. You know, nobody can work with you. And you're, she used this word contemptuous. And remember, hubris in the classical Greek mode, they attach a lot of importance to contempt. And when you see evidence of that, then you begin to think of this. And I said to my wife, I said, why didn't you tell me this? She said, I was telling you all the time, you just weren't listening. <laughs> <laughs> and there are some very good signs. Why was Lloyd George constrained in wartime? He created the first war cabinet. Bona Law next door as chancellor, conservative, a man almost without ambition, if you can say that for a politician. Mm -hmm. Lloyd George would go from number 10 to number 11 almost every day that he was in London and they would talk together. And Bonalor would quietly cool him down and dismiss about nine of his suggestions, and then they would take the other 10, or the other one. Apart from Clementine Churchill, during the war, that role of curbing the excesses of uh, Churchill was largely performed by Field Marshal Lord Allenbrook. And if you want to read serious diaries, his unexpurgated diaries are extremely important. Willie Whitelaw. I believe had that effect on Margaret Thatcher. And it was interesting, I don't think she developed what I would call full-blown hubris syndrome until he had gone off to the House of Lords and was no longer involved. So I think that this does exist, and in a way I'm writing about something which I'm well aware of. And I think that it, you do need these constraints. And I think one of the issues which we have to discuss is the type of constraints. A very powerful constraint in the American system is you cannot be American president for longer than two four-year terms, eight years. Mm. If eight years had been the minimum period, Margaret Thatcher would not have, I think, developed mm. hubris syndrome in office, and Tony Blair would have been on the edge. Mm. Although I actually think he, he, he started to develop this before uh, the Iraq war. I think he was into it in Kosovo, and one of Clinton's aides said, to at the time, and they were dealing with Blair, they said uh, the trouble with him is he's sprinkling too much adrenaline on his cornflakes. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not going to go into the neuroscience, mm -hmm. but I believe this has a basis mm -hmm. in the dopaminergic or the adrenergic or some of the systems of the uh, uh, neuroscience of the brain, but it's much too early to be clear about that, and it'll take us decades to sort this one out, but I think that personally. It's like the long-distance runner. We don't know why they go through the pain threshold, but if you do experience it, I, long times that I've run, but you actually know that your body changes. I think that something similar happens to these people. They're in office, they're on this high plane, they're overcharged, they're working long hours, they're hyped up, and then suddenly it seems to click in. If, if we, 
moved slightly away from the neuroscience side, there were some things you said which might satisfy the other group in our audience. Remember, we're a broad church in psychiatry and a lot of social psychiatrists here. But what you've been describing suggests that, um, that if, in fact, you have cabinet members who have sufficient authority and uh, robustness to challenge you and you don't, uh, the system doesn't become presidential, then, in fact, this could probably counter this syndrome from developing. It's when it becomes a presidential type one that it tends to get out of hand. And, of course, presumably the president or the prime minister has the power to create that. And if, in fact, we didn't have the power to create that, perhaps it might be less likely to develop. I believe that strongly. And in American business, and I've been on the board of Abbott Laboratories now, which is a very large healthcare company, the 50th largest in the world, for 12 years... And board members take their roles pretty seriously. And one of them they do see as containing and uh, constraining not just the existing chief executives and uh, senior executives, but those coming up through. And they have developed in American business a system of mentoring. And you get somebody, preferably outside the company, who could almost be seen to be... more senior than this person, somebody who they can look up to, and they try to establish a a dialogue between these two people, and we pay money to try and get this dialogue. So we've spotted a potential leader, considerable skills and attributes, but some defects, and we try to catch it in time. And I think that that is something, very hard to do that to politicians, but business could and should get a grip on this one. I mean, the other thing which you... I mean, some people say to me, well, what stops somebody from getting hubris syndrome? Well, I think sense of humour is very good, and also cynicism. Theodore Roosevelt got quite close... Oh, sorry, Franklin Roosevelt got quite close to this in 1937, some of you may remember. He got so angry with the Supreme Court that he was threatening to kick them all out. Well, this was too much, even for a uh, Congress which was broadly democratic at that stage... And he was checked. Now, he could have either pushed it ahead or moved back and taken it on the chin. He took it on the chin. He realized he'd gone too far. And he was a rooted Democrat. And these things matter. You know, respect for the House of Commons was a big feature in Churchill's ebullience and personality. That was a curb. The press, we have a hopelessly complacent press. They're always after scandals. But they love to be wooed. They love to go to checkers and have dinner with the prime minister. They, uh, in a way, they get alongside politicians. It's part of that whole spin, sleaze stuff. You know, just think back to Clement Attlee and how Attlee would have behaved to journalists. Now, it's not always perfect, but I mean, the 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 need, the the readiness of the press to be embraced by politicians is, in my view, a very serious defect. They should keep their distance. They should be permanent critics. Uh, politicians should expect to be savaged by the press. It's a democratic check. Um, I, I, I'm going to put a plug in for something else which is concerned with the book I signed yesterday because uh, I can't really compete with David who's signing his uh, later on today. But uh, as, um, as you, some of you may know, I've been making the case for environmental therapy as a as a formal form of treatment in the form of nidotherapy, which is named after the Latin nidus nest. And, uh, of course, this comes from the complete opposite spectrum uh, of, uh, 
of human existence in that the patients I see mainly are severely ill patients who have failed every aspect of evidence-based medicine. And we developed this treatment of adjusting the environment to suit people who are otherwise going to be permanently disturbed because if you get the, the right environment for people, they can often get a lot better. Of course, one can easily see what David is describing uh, as the as a negative environment creating pathology in someone who, who wouldn't have that pathology but for the environment. And I think uh, it, it perhaps is an illustration of, of the negative aspects of environment and perhaps how we could manage our affairs greatly. One of the interesting things that David has said in this book and also today is how some people, even though they have all the ability to take over the reins of power and, and become hubristic, as uh, David would describe it, choose not to do so. And I, you know, I, I think of Gandhi as perhaps the, the, the prime example, perhaps. Uh, but um, uh, it's, it, it, if we could choose our leaders <laughs> so that we could avoid this from developing, it would be a tremendous asset. But I'm not sure if you... No, think prevention and treatment, I think... Um, treatment, we've talked about some aspects of the environment. Can you think of any way of preventing this sort of thing from happening? Is there any way of, of improving our electoral process so we get the right people? Well, I think one of the things that we need to do is to have a, a rather more rational debate about leadership. We've fallen in love, I think helped greatly by the press, with dynamic leadership, by which they mean you're on the on the spot all the time. I mean, the idea of a leader, prime minister or president, saying, well, I need time to think about this. Obama's getting quite close to it on one or two occasions. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting uh, uh, new phenomenon, actually. And I think that we see it in this comment, the, the feeling they have to comment on every aspect of a 24-hour, seven-day news cycle. So now, celebrities, pop celebrities die, and the prime minister issues a statement about it. And this is, this is, so I think that we need to ask ourselves, and if you like, rediscover the virtues. I think we are doing this. It's very interesting to see how Attlee is now seen. You'll get conservatives will say, well, you know, there are only two great prime ministers since the war. You may not agree with it, but they'll say Thatcher and Attlee. You, it's quite interesting, quite a few Labour people are beginning to rethink Thatcher. Now, she is a, a more doddle of a, of, of a hubristic leader. Attlee is certainly the antithesis of a hubristic leader who had a team and worked with a team. So I think that uh, we need to discuss and get a, a better atmosphere that there are at least two different styles of leaders, and it's not immediately obvious that the only one is the dynamic activist leader, and that the more collectivist and the more consensual leader can also have advantages. And I think Eisenhower's another classic example of a good leader in that respect. I can't help thinking of uh, our um, Chinese colleagues who have uh, perhaps been more civilised for longer than any other part of this world, and they have a nice little proverb, which is um, that a, a bad leader is one who is hated and detested by his subjects. A good leader is one that is loved by his subjects, but the best leader is one whose subjects do not know he even exists. <laughs>
And I think the notion of being in the background, like Attlee was, and being detached, I think is obviously a, a, a major advantage which we're only just now beginning to appreciate. Uh, power so is a very yeah. interesting thing. Uh, Roy Porter, I, I quote this in his Social History of Madness, had this quotation, and I think it's worth think, pondering. The history of madness is the history of power. Because it imagines power, madness is both impotence and omnipotence. It requires power to control it. Threatening the normal structures of authority, insanity is engaged in an endless dialogue, a monomaniacal monologue, sometimes, about power. Oh, well, that's a, a, a marvellous way, I think, to... I'm sorry, unfortunately, we have come to the end of our time, but that's a marvellous way to summarise um, this discussion. I hope you found it uh, of interest, and uh, those who wish to take it further... Um, David is now going down to the ground floor where he will be signing copies of his book by the Wise Press Stand. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you, David.